Okay. <laughs> if this is your first week here, sorry. <sighs> um, before, before I jump into it, I, Laura and I were at the coffee shop this morning, and, and she asked what I was thinking, and I was thinking that in all of our lives, my life and her life, we never have felt uh, the call of God as clearly or directly or powerfully as when we were told to come here. And the privilege of working with those who are already here, which is so great to see so many of you still here, and all those that God has brought into our community remains the, the privilege of our lives. So thank you very much. A friend, uh, a friend says this part of the Lord's Prayer that we are going through together, this part of the Lord's Prayer should be called getting past your past. Because so often the past comes along with us and it infects our present and ruins our future. The past refuses to stay in the past. As a matter of fact, great literature and great movies are all revolving around this idea that something bad happens to somebody and there is a broken relationship between them and somebody else and that produces the tension that gives great literature and great movies their thrust going forward. How will that be resolved and if it is not, what tragedy will happen? I'm in a a small group of guys and One of them joined us this week. He missed last week because he was out of state with his dying mother. And the family gathered around mom and they were telling stories and remembering. And this guy is, he is just a puppy. He always has a smile on his face. He never has a bad word to say about anybody. If you and he are on the outs, it's your fault. It is, he is just a wonderful human being. And he said they were going around the circle and his sister who is 60, said, yeah, I, I grew up and my brother was mean. And she realized, he realized that she was talking about him. And for 50 years, she's held that. Because the past doesn't stay in the past. Psychologist Rollo May wrote that the greatest single predictor of joy in your life The greatest single predictor that you will have joy in your life is the extent to which you are connected with other people in loving relationships. Greatest single predictor, and that also means that the greatest single obstacle to joy in your life is when you are disconnected from people that you should love. The biggest reason you and I cannot grab a hold of joy and run through it today is that we cannot let go of the pain and grief and hurt and suffering and guilt and anger that came yesterday and the day before from some other source. Every one of you in the room, every one of you in the room has something in your past that you would love to get past, but you cannot. And that, frankly, is uh, why we brought the rocks. I was a little leery about giving them to the choir, but we're going to take a chance. I'd love you to just hold the rock in your hand for a second. C.S. Lewis says, if we love another at all, it is sure that our hearts will be hurt. But if we wrap those hearts up and lock them away to be kept safe, 
They will not heal and they will not grow. They will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable stone. That's what's at stake here. Your heart. The most precious part of you. It is meant to live. It is meant to love forever beginning today. And it is either hardening into heart, hardening into stone, or coming to life. That's why Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In, in good part, it is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, most clearly in Matthew's version. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you know why? Because Matthew is a tax collector. He understands all about bad debt. He knows that when you borrow money from somebody, you have to pay it back. That's why they do not call them loan puppies. They call them loan sharks. <laughs> Debts are serious and must be repaid. I've learned in my study this week of the prayer that the most important word in this verse is not what I thought it was. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is not what I thought it was. And I would, uh, I'd like to tell a story that Jesus tells to show you what the most important word in this verse is. It's also found in Matthew. It's only found in the Gospel of Matthew, the tax collector. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, 77 times. You see, the kingdom of heaven is like a king that wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him, who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, that's the way it says, 10,000 bags of gold was brought before the king. So the king, obviously, is a king of huge generosity who wants to give people all kinds of things, but the king is also about justice and about settling accounts. Since the servant was not able to repay, the text says, the master ordered that the man and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. This is a very Jewish story. It is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice is important. At this, the servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me, I'll pay everything back. 10,000 bags of gold, right. I'll pay everything back. And the king took pity on his servant and canceled the debt and let him go. It says he took pity on him. He didn't refinance the debt. He forgave it. He washed it away. That is the, where they're telling the story and the disciples are hearing it. They go, get him, get him, get him. He forgave the debt, and and then the disciples go, oh, oh, I get it. I get it. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. That's lunch money. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient. I'll pay it back. But the man refused and instead... The servant went off and had his fellow servant thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. 
Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they told the king. And the king called the servant in and said, you wicked servant. I canceled all your debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he had owed. And Jesus ends, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart and have mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you. The most important word in that verse may very well be forgive us our debts as we forgive our others. Not so that we'll be forgiven, but in the same way that I was forgiven, I need to continue to forgive. You see, the the unmerciful servant never felt pitied. He didn't want the king's pity. He never felt mercy. Remember it says the king took pity on him. But the servant wanted to repay the impossible, to feel superior. He dodged grace. You've seen people who dodge grace. They wanted to be about the rules. He's like Jobert in Les Mis, who has the inability to experience grace. And so he judges everybody else by the law, the law that he cannot keep himself. When Dallas Willard translates the Lord's Prayer, he uses the word pity. Have pity on us as we have pity on others. He said even mercy doesn't feel as as good. It seems more dignified, like compassion. Have compassion. That's not what the text says. The text says have pity. Because only pity reaches our heart. The word pity makes us wince. I don't want somebody to have pity on me. Thank you very much. Mercy's okay. But pity makes it sound like I am... Pitiful. Who wants to feel that? Willard says this. To pity somebody these days is to feel sorry for them. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. That feels demeaning, whereas to have mercy nowadays is thought to be slightly noble. It's give them a break. Have mercy on them. Give them a break. That's not what this text means. Today, even many Christians read and say, forgive us our debts as give me a break. In typical early 21st century manner, this saves our ego. I'm not pitiful. I'm not a sinner. I just need a break. The prayer says I need more than a break. I need pity because I am broken. Anybody who prays this prayer says I am broken. And if my pride is untouched, When I pray for forgiveness, when I say, give me a break, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. I'm like like the unmerciful servant who got pitied by his boss and didn't want to feel pitiful, so he held everybody else to standards. When we receive pity, when we receive forgiveness, we give up the right to hurt them back, and we learn to wish them well before God. It's not an emotion. Forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt them back and learning to wish them well before God. 
Let's take out that rock again. Look at it. Where is that in your heart? Where, where is that for you? What's, what's bad for you that's turning to stone, that needs forgiveness? John Ortberg says, uh, forgiveness starts with deciding what's bad. That sometimes it's my bad. Sometimes it's your bad. Sometimes it's just bad. Something in the past has happened, we can't get by it. But today, let's talk about my bad and your bad. What's my bad? My bad, my bad is any time that you're less than honest. Every time you fudge your expense account or your tax return, every time you're unloving with a five-year-old, every time you should not have made that cutting remark, but you did. Every time you should have spoken up, but you didn't. Every time God gave you a gift and you were not grateful. Every time you gossiped, every selfish act, every racist thought, every sexually impure thought or deed, every judgmental attitude is turning the heart harder. Every human being is in this same boat, every single one. I'm a pastor. I've devoted my life to spiritual growth. It took me about 30 seconds to come up with that list. You know why? Because my wife has done every single one of those things. (laughs) Will I pay for that or what? (laughs) That list is me. It's my bad. I'm a person who does that. I'm a person who lies, who's cruel, who hoards. That's me. And I need to confess that. Because God, I want you to help me become a different kind of person that doesn't do that anymore. Whoever I've hurt, I want to go back to them. I want to make it right. I want to lay my guilt and my sin down at the foot of the cross. Because that is the only place where the debts can be forgiven. That's why Jesus died and I will receive pity from him. So that I might have mercy and start again. When I look at the people that I have hurt, the things I have done, that is the only way I know how to get past my past with my bad. That's forgiveness. There's another category. There's my bad, the things that I've done, and then there's your bad. In, in your bad, I have to let go of something you've done to me. It's not my fault. You did it. You hurt me. Somebody cheated me. Somebody bullied me. Somebody insulted me deliberately or disrespected me or there's a boss that's been unfair to you or somebody violated me so badly you're filled with anger. And again, we have to go back to the cross because the heart is turned to stone by that anger. We have to go back to the cross to see again how I have not received what I have deserved. I have been shown pity and worked worked toward that same pity. I meet with a group of pastors uh, about once a month and we met on Tuesday and we went around and shared what's one highlight of our fall and then we said, what's one thing that we're struggling with? And I laughed. I, I said, I know what it is. I'm preaching on forgiveness this coming weekend 
And somebody this last week, somebody this last week has impugned my integrity, has said that I mishandle money, and it hurts so bad. And so I, I left. I said, how am I supposed to preach this? Well, it's the same way you do. I have to ask for pity again and learn to give up the right to hurt that person back and learn to wish them well before God. I need to underscore what forgiveness is not. Because when church talks about forgiveness, everybody oh, just, just it's okay. That's not forgiveness. It's okay is not forgiveness. You're excused is not forgiveness. Toleration, tolerating bad behavior is not forgiveness. To forgive someone is not to do what that other person wants. To forgive someone is not to run away from confronting something that's wrong. To have pity on someone to forgive them is not necessarily even to reconcile because reconciliation requires both of us to come to the middle and the other person may never come there. Some of you who have been abused, it is not safe to go back and be reconciled. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt them back and learning to wish them well before God. Whether it is my bad or your bad or it's bad and it's bad is somewhere there in the past that has left you with regrets that you can't shake. Whatever it is, it requires forgiveness to pay the debts, to wash the slate, to be free so that my heart will live that it will learn to beat with the love of God, that it will not have stony parts in it. Would you hold this in your hand, please, as we pray? This, Lord, is not academic. It's not about somebody else. When I say forgive us our debts as we forgive others, it is about me saying my bad. I cannot fix it. My bad. Or they're bad. And I can't change it. They're bad. But we can turn to you, the one who hangs on the cross so that your blood would pay my debts and wash my sins clean and say, dear God, Forgive my debts, which I cannot repay, as I forgive others who cannot repay me. In your mercy, in your pity, hear our prayer. Amen.